Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Hussein Yilmaz joins the show again. On July 3rd, 2021, Dr. Yilmaz joined the show and we had a conversation about the founding of the Ottomans. In that conversation, we spoke about things like what scholars know about their inception period early languages, religion, titles and offices, and more. And in this episode today, Dr. Yilmaz joins the show again, and we're going to talk about the Ottomans in the 14th century. Some of the items that we covered in the previous episode will naturally come up in this dialogue today, but this episode is to act as more of a overview type format for what was occurring for the Ottomans in the 14th century, so the 1300s. Dr. Yilmaz is Associate Professor at George Mason University, based in the U.S. He's also Research Director at the Ali Veralok Center for Global Islamic Studies at George Mason University. He has written many publications over his career, including authoring the monograph, Caliphate Redefined, The Mystical Turn in Ottoman Political Thought, which was published by Princeton University Press. And Dr. Yilmaz joins the show today from Turkey, Welcome back on the show, Hussein. Thank you very much for inviting me for the second episode on early modern Ottoman history. It's good to connect with you again, Hussein, as always. Um, so to start the conversation off, Hussein, can you share enough background and context on how you would describe who or what the Ottomans were in the 14th century? So the 1300s, and then we'll, of course, work our way into the details in the conversation today. Yes, the Ottomans were quite unknown at the time. They were uh, a nomadic group in the northwestern part of Anatolia, bordering the Byzantine Empire and other larger Turkish principalities. And by all means, it's difficult to call them a state uh, at that stage. Uh, but they were uh, a nomadic group behaving independently uh, given the conditions of the uh, frontier, uh, namely uh, because of the lack of a large imperial control uh, and because of the weakness and political fragmentation of uh, Anatolian political situation. Uh, at the time, uh, the Ottomans uh, or the tribe of Osman uh, to say uh, in better terms, uh, were an, 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 a social entity uh, acting independently, controlling uh, a territory and building alliances with other independently acting groups such as Byzantine uh, feudal lords uh, or dervish entities or other nomadic groups and as they expand uh, also integrating some of the uh, city structures, uh, but not in a very systematic uh, or physically state-building effort. Uh, rather, building an authority uh, and providing uh, security to its uh, allies, uh, whereas expanding their influence uh, to, to an area uh, where there is no uh, sizable military or political presence. Uh, but despite all that, uh, the Ottomans were quite not uh, visible 
in the beginning of the 14th century until way into the uh, middle of the century. So it's believed that the Ottomans formed in the northern part of the Anatolian Peninsula? Uh, northwest. Okay. And so in, in the early year, years, in the early part of the century, is it, is it that they had one community or is it believed that there was multiple communities initially that were jointly operating together? And, and then how, what's known about how that may have changed the, the number of communities um, as part of the Ottomans in, in the century, in the 14th century? That was constantly changing. Uh, the area was quite dynamic uh, in terms of social mobility um, and uh, political interaction, uh, even uh, mercantile interactions. Uh, and the Ottomans were, um, I want to underline this point uh, one more time, they were not quite uh, perhaps after building a state uh, because the, uh, the foundation of the Ottomans or the rise of the Ottomans do not easily fit uh, to other patterns we see in the area because most states take over the existing fragmented, collapsed, defeated uh, states and rebuild uh, over those institutions or especially in the broader quote-unquote uh, Muslim world uh, certain uh, military uh, components of empires or states uh, through series of coups take over uh, their former bosses uh, and then establish themselves uh, as uh, states. Tanjuks came to power as such, Mamluks uh, came to power as such. Now, the Ottomans did not topple uh, any existing uh, state uh, and they did not readily inherit any existing state structure. Uh, they were just uh, a tightly, a tightly knit uh, nomadic group among themselves, but successful in terms of fetching alliances and expanding uh, through integration um, and military conquest. Uh, so their evolution into a state uh, was uh, not due to their inheritance, uh, but due to their own uh, efforts and um, uh, and and learning uh, and taking over uh, bits and pieces of uh, uh, institutions that relate to state here and there. So in the last episode that we did on the Ottomans, Hussein, you had spoke about the, their relationship with the with the Mongols. Can you can you share? Uh, what that relationship was and how it may have changed in the 14th century. Yeah, initially, uh, the Ottomans were a tributary state uh, or tributary principality uh, to the Mongols uh, because after the defeat of the Seljuk state in Anatolia, Anatolia came under the control of the Mongols, but the Mongols did not um, have a very strict control over Anatolia. Nevertheless, uh, they collected taxes uh, from post-Seljuk states uh, from Anatolia. They did not shape up 
uh, Anatolia and Mongols were quite not interested in the western parts of the uh, their empires west of Iran. Um, anyways, uh, so they collected taxes uh, from the remainder uh, of the Seljuk uh, states from Anatolia and the Ottomans uh, were one of them, uh, not, not one of the notable ones, uh, but just one of those tributary uh, states. So the first tangible connections of the Ottomans, the Mongols, uh, was as taxpayers. But through that relationship, of course, uh, they came to know a little bit about the Mongol state structure, uh, Mongol state uh, traditions, uh, and they were also exposed uh, to the Sanchu uh, state institutions, which were inherited uh, by the uh, Mongols uh, in Anatolia. So the Mongols still had uh, a governorate over the entire Anatolia. Um, at the time, um, and in the meantime, the Ottomans were also receiving um, through human mobility um, people who were exposed or work uh, in different Mongol entities uh, from Central Asia, uh, West Coast, for a variety of reasons, uh, scholars uh, or dervishes or secretaries or in some cases intellectuals, poets, uh, were moving westward. Uh, so Anatolia was uh, a recipient of a good number of um, educated, skillful uh, people and many of them ended up uh, with Western uh, Anatolia who brought uh, with them uh, Persian uh, state tradition. Plus, because of this uh, exposure, uh, the Mongol uh, state tradition. Uh, and so, so these are the two main channels. Uh, by which the Ottomans were exposed uh, to, to Mongol um, influences. Is it believed that there there was a, a desire to become a, a, autonomous, to disembark from that relationship with the with 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 the Mongols? What's what's known about about that, Hussein? Yes, yes, that's a very good question. Uh, so what I talked about was their um, uh, very uh, social uh, and political channels of uh, exposure. On the other hand, the Mongols, especially for the Ottomans, uh, I think, um, provided a model uh, for turning themselves uh, into a state because Mongols turned into a global empire out of uh, a negligible uh, group of nomads. And the Ottomans were a group of nomads too. Um, as we spoke just earlier, uh, they didn't inherit any uh, state. Uh, so uh, the Mongols, everybody knew uh, at the time as uh, the Khanate, uh, the Mongol Great Khan, uh, and nobody could challenge uh, that authority. It was the most prestigious independent title uh, in Eurasia at the time. And the, uh, including the Ottomans, nobody could claim uh, that title, including the uh, much more powerful principalities in Anatolia. They all called themselves either Sultan or uh, Ben, uh, the Turkish word. Uh, both means ruler. Uh, but calling themselves Khan would be very uh, <clears throat> rebellious, uh, would be considered as an attempt to defy uh, Ottoman, I uh, know, Mongol suzerainty. Uh, 
uh, and the claim for independence. But what did the Ottomans do, uh, in my mind, quite ingeniously, uh, Osman, uh, the first independent ruler of the Ottoman dynasty, named his son, uh, his uh, heir, Orhan. So Orhan is a proper name, uh, but also has uh, the name Khan uh, in it. So the Ottomans uh, actually with Orhan, without claiming the title of Khan, uh, they started to use it. Uh, so that shows uh, at least the Ottomans' um, knowledge uh, and desire uh, to become like the Mongol uh, Empire. And during Orhan's lifetime, uh, the Ottomans actually started to use the Khan title as well, because by mid-14th century, Mongol rule in Anatolia uh, got weakened. Uh, so uh, they were more busy uh, with, the, <clears throat> with their imperial issues, uh, including the uh, Persian Mongols, uh, the Ilkhanids. <clears throat> so uh, their control over Anatolia weakened. More and more Anatolian rulers uh, started not to pay uh, their taxes uh, and started to act independently. Uh, in fact, the neighbor of Ottomans, uh, the Karesti principality, was the first to use that title. Uh, so they named themselves Khan, which means independent rulers, which means we are not paying taxes uh, to the Mongols anymore. The Ottomans uh, followed the suite. So we could say by mid, uh, we, we cannot pinpoint an exact date for that, but by mid 14th uh, century, the Ottomans uh, consciously um, declared uh, themselves uh, as an independent state in the model uh, of the Mongols by adopting that title. Is it is it known what what year they began to use the the title Khan? No, I mean there is there is no ceremonial occasion. Uh, we have uh, a few historical um, evidences um, and documents uh, in which. Uh, the Ottoman ruler was called as Khan. But th there is no such uh, specific date uh, that they came out and uh, said that they are Khans. Okay. You mentioned the Dervish, Dervish people as well or, or in one of your responses earlier. Can you uh, share who, who, what, 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 who the Dervish were and their relationship to the Ottomans in this century? Yes, dervishes are one of the main um, constituting um, or constitutional, we could say, components of uh, the evolving Ottoman uh, state. Uh, as I said, the dynasty comes from a nomadic background. Uh, they were agile, they, had the, uh, they were mobile, uh, and they were quite flexible. Uh, and they were by nature uh, a military force uh, because of their uh, nomadic lifestyle. But in order to consolidate uh, themselves uh, as a legitimate uh, state, they uh, increasingly um, integrated other structures uh, at the frontier. And one of those structures uh, or groups were dervish uh, groups. And we could say those dervishes were at least as independent as uh, any principality or 
contesting uh, statelets of the time. So the Ottomans were only one of those uh, independent groups uh, in the frontier. So they were not necessarily more powerful, more legitimate, or more independent than, let's say, a dervish group. Uh, because just like uh, the Ottomans um, had their followers uh, and a group of people, they provide security and uh, perhaps uh, provide some order and law. The dervish groups, uh, with their charismatic leaders, uh, they had their own territorial claims. Uh, in many cases, they actually own uh, lands. Uh, if they are based in cities, uh, they could actually claim uh, cities uh, as their of as their territories of uh, independence uh, and they have a large number of uh, followers many of those followers were organized under uh, the representatives uh, of those uh, charismatic leaders for example just before the Ottomans, uh, there was a big uh, sufi uh, rebellion in anatolia against the uh, Seljuks uh, during the uh, stalemate and standoff uh, uh, during the rebellion, the charismatic uh, Sufi leader threatened uh, the uh, Seljuk rule, saying that I have 400 representatives. Uh, each of those hundred, uh, representatives equal khalifas. So I have 400 khalifas representing uh, my legitimacy, my power, uh, my control, and each of them uh, have 400 um, followers. So they were uh, a military force at the same time uh, to to reckon uh, just with a different kind of uh, uh, legitimacy apparatus, uh, deriving their legitimacy directly uh, from uh, divine imagery, so their connection uh, to the uh, divine and the spiritual world. Uh, so they were um, in contest and competition uh, with the temporal rulers, including uh, the Ottomans. So what the Ottomans did was, uh, during their consolidation and uh, expansion at the frontier, they allied uh, with these uh, dervish groups, uh, mostly the ones who were based in the countryside. In roughly speaking, we can talk about two main types of dervish groups. Um, operational uh, or in action or in existence in Western Anatolia at the time. One was learned um, and urban-based, uh, mostly appealing to the cosmopolitan urban populations, to artisans, scholars, uh, merchants, etc. Uh, the other one uh, was mostly operational in rural areas, uh, coming from an illiterate uh, background, in fact, defying uh, literacy because literacy implies authority, uh, and they claimed uh, they have a higher authority directly uh, from uh, the divine without the means of conveyed knowledge uh, based on the books uh, and uh, genealogies of uh, learning. Uh, so they, they, their claim was that direct uh, exposure to divine light. So these uh, dervishes uh, were quite appealing. They also used the Turkish language uh, and in the uh, rural areas. So with those, the Ottomans felt 
in closer contact because animals themselves were also not coming uh, from an urban background, from a learned background. The animals did not have a courtly life for much of the uh, 14th century until uh, the late uh, century. All animal chronicles and contemporaries actually praise early Ottoman rulers uh, for living in very simplistic terms, not necessarily uh, because of their piety, because of uh, their lifestyle. They were still uh, nomadic uh, peoples. They did, still did not develop uh, such high uh, culture or the leisure uh, to enjoy the power uh, or the uh, revenue stream, uh, extra surplus revenue stream uh, to spice up uh, their courtly life. So they were much like those uh, dervishes in um, in competition, uh, but the Ottomans managed uh, to ally with many of those uh, dervishes by acknowledging their spiritual powers, in return being acknowledged uh, by them um, as uh, the temporal authorities uh, in the region. So that's a very important element uh, to distinguish uh, the Ottomans uh, from other temporal rulers uh, in the region, namely that spiritual component provided uh, by the dervishes who were very, very popular uh, in the um, frontier region. In fact, uh, they were in most cases ahead of uh, Ottoman raids uh, in their expansion into Western Anatolia or the Balkans. Uh, so we see, for example, uh, more Sufi lodges built in this era uh, than castles um, or any state buildings by the Ottomans. Uh, that shows uh, the power of Dervish verbs and the crucial role they played uh, in the expansion of the early Ottomans. In this century, if I recall in the last episode, you had said some believe that either some or all of the Ottomans um, were oriented towards Christianity early, early on. Um, and please clarify, of course, in your in your response. In this century, did they incorporate? Is it believed that they incorporated Islam as a as a belief system? And what's what's known about about that? Based on all we know, uh, the Ottomans uh, from the very early on were Muslims. Uh, it was problematized uh, by the British historian at the turn of the 20th century, uh, Gibbons, uh, that the Ottomans uh, could be uh, a Christian uh, group later converted to um, Islam, but that uh, even ethnically, uh, he argued that there may not be, uh, there may not have been Turks. So that theory was largely now discredited, uh, so all the historical evidence uh, we have at hand suggests uh, that the Ottomans were uh, nomadic Turks uh, and Muslims. But that doesn't suggest uh, that the Ottomans were uh, very conscious uh, or very competent uh, in their confession, uh, in the sense that they were a uh, nomadic group, uh, they were living mostly outside the uh, cities which provide learning uh, and rituals uh, of uh, inherited um, Islam uh, and their exposure uh, to Islam was at best um, gradual uh, and slowly 
uh, they learned about Islam and they uh, start to practice uh, ever more complicated uh, legal and ritualistic aspects uh, of uh, Islam. But in terms of their confession, uh, we have all the evidence uh, that they were uh, Muslims. And also we don't know uh, what uh, in terms of Islam they believed in because Western Anatolia at the time was one of the most diverse areas of uh, the again quote-unquote uh, Muslim world. Some centers, let's say Baghdad, Samarkand, Cairo, you would have all the traditional uh, sects uh, available there. In many cases, a particular theological or legal text would dominate um, a particular religious tendency uh, would dominate uh, and you would have certain schools of uh, thought and praxis um, operational in these cities. In Western Anatolia, they were not. Uh, you mostly have individual um, exponents uh, of Islam uh, based on their own um, life experiences um, uh, and contemplations who many of them actually could not uh, survive uh, in their home uh, regions and moved uh, to West Anatolia, including uh, the very famous Rumi. Uh, Rumi's father actually fled uh, from Central Asia because of the dominance of uh, Sunni theologians uh, based on his own uh, account. So, but Rumi was not uh, an exception. Uh, we have so many other such high-profile names uh, moved to Anatolia from Arab regions or Central Asia, finding there uh, a much more uh, accommodating uh, cultural and intellectual uh, environment. Uh, so in that environment, the Ottomans uh, were learning uh, Islam from multiple sources. So we cannot simply say they were Sunni Muslims at the outset. They became Sunni Muslims as uh, time passed. Besides Islam, they were also in very, they had to be close connection with the uh, Christian elements because uh, by any means, uh, the Christian population uh, greatly outnumbered uh, the Ottoman, Ottomans uh, in whichever territory they controlled uh, by centuries even after. So the Ottomans were living in the midst of uh, a very large uh, Christian population, both urban and uh, rural. Uh, so first thing we observe here is the Osmans uh, and then his successors alliances uh, with Christian nobility. Uh, so early Ottoman chronicles recount some of the legendary um, uh, commanders um, and companions uh, of Osman, uh, more than half of them uh, are having uh, Christian names. Uh, so it's not, uh, we cannot readily say they converted or not converted at the time, but they are coming from Christian uh, backgrounds. Uh, that didn't seem to create any tension, rather uh, it added uh, to the Ottomans' uh, ability uh, to expand quite uh, quite rapidly by integrating those uh, Christian uh, structures into their uh, entity. In terms of how much they got affected, 
uh, by Christian uh, religion uh, itself? Uh, we don't know. We have evidence uh, that uh, people who were connected uh, with the Ottomans uh, got into um, conversations uh, or debates uh, with Christian uh, clergy uh, in the region. Uh, in most cases, uh, these were very typical of whose religion is uh, better uh, or more accurate, uh, more true to God's uh, word. Uh, but that suggests uh, that they were in at least close contact uh, and curious and knowledgeable uh, about each other's uh, faith. And also, in addition to that, we also see that the Ottomans uh, were um, getting into marital relationships uh, with Christian nobility. Um, Orhan's grandfather, Orhan's father-in-law, uh, was uh, later became the Byzantine emperor. Uh, so he actually worked uh, to reinstitute his uncle uh, to the Byzantine uh, throne. And then again, starting with Orhan, almost all Ottoman rulers in the 14th century had. Uh, Christian mothers, uh, so it's impossible to have a Christian lady at home uh, and not being exposed uh, to Christianity, uh, at least at cultural level, uh, level uh, somehow. Uh, so we could say uh, the Ottomans, uh, to say the least, uh, lived in a very culturally and confessionally uh, vibrant uh, and mixed uh, environment, uh, which they took advantage of. Uh, because they themselves did not represent uh, at the time any particular view uh, of uh, Islam. So despite the fact uh, that they called themselves Ghazis, Ghazi means raider for the faith, uh, namely expanding God's worth, uh, which God is the God of uh, Islam, of course. That Ghazi ethos uh, was very well established. Uh, among the uh, Ottomans, uh, but Ghazi title uh, or Ghazi chivalry, uh, let's say, was the name of the game um, across the board uh, at the time. If you're expanding uh, your uh, state, especially in areas uh, populated by perceived infidels, uh, you are by definition uh, called Ghazis. Uh, by the established uh, sections of the Islamic uh, community. That doesn't mean uh, the Ottomans uh, were uh, so enthusiastic uh, about uh, conquering a given uh, area strictly uh, in the name of God for the purpose of instituting uh, the rule of God uh, in that uh, region. Uh, so, uh, because they themselves did not know uh, we know, for example, Osman was illiterate, uh, so he cannot possibly uh, represent some very uh, refined, well-tuned, um, and well-known version of uh, Islam. In the meantime, um, as much as they were expanding, uh, they themselves uh, were being exposed uh, to learn traditions uh, of Islam and becoming more and more conscious uh, of it. But at least in the first uh, century, the 14th, uh, Central. The fact that they were very receptive uh, and in close contact uh, with the 
uh, Christian figures um, because of their own lack of uh, any visible uh, religious ideology uh, to represent. Okay. How would you describe the level of congeniality they had with the Byzantine Empire in this century? I would say um, towards the end of the century, I mean, the more the Ottomans got powerful uh, and expanded, inevitably they got into conflict uh, with the Byzantine Empire as well. But at the beginning, I don't think the Ottomans, uh, I mean, of course, the very foundation of the Ottomans started uh, with their fight with the uh, Byzantines uh, anyways. But these kinds of wars uh, were happening uh, quite uh, frequently as border clashes uh, between the Ottoman forces uh, and the Byzantine uh, forces. And I don't know how it could be properly um, named. Uh, I'm not sure congeniality is the best word um, here. But uh, for a century or so, the Ottomans and the Byzantines coexisted uh, with uh, a lot of fight uh, against each other, also with a lot of uh, alliances uh, with each other. Uh, so it was, for, for example, uh, a very typical game during the succession wars. Uh, the Byzantine princes would take refuge uh, with the Ottomans, the Ottoman princes would be either kidnapped or take refuge uh, with the Byzantines uh, to get reinstalled uh, in their uh, thrones. Uh, so it's not uh, it's continuous warfare uh, of attrition between the Ottomans and uh, Byzantines. In the meantime, uh, they were connected uh, through multiple means, uh, such as commerce. Uh, they were they were engaged in commerce uh, between uh, the two uh, states' territories. Um, and But as the Ottomans expanded and the Byzantines were shrinking power uh, at that time, not only pressured by the Ottomans, uh, but also by the other uh, rising uh, states in the Balkans, uh, the Byzantines were under constant uh, pressure uh, and threat. Uh, so the Ottomans um, actually started to siege uh, Constantinople. The most important of those sieges uh, was by Bayezid uh, the first, which did not succeed. Uh, and after failure, uh, it just failed. Uh, they didn't uh, make it. Uh, a matter of uh, life or death. They continued mostly into the uh, Balkans. So taking over Constantinople um, was not quite uh, a priority uh, for the Ottomans. Uh, they were more interested in expanding uh, into the Balkans, uh, such as Bulgaria, uh, Bosnia, uh, most importantly, of course. Um, and then even in the 15th uh, century or when Mehmed II decided to take over Constantinople, it wasn't uh, a wholeheartedly supported decision uh, by the Ottoman elite. We can talk about that uh, later. Uh, so he did that despite the opposition uh, of some of the elite members of uh, Ottoman uh, officials. 
the the one siege that you you cited um not the not the Mehmet the second one but the one the the first one that you had you had cited did that occur in, in this century in the 14th century yes yes okay the last time we chatted you had mentioned that they started to produce coinage around if i recall around 1350 do scholars um consider the Ottomans to have formed a state at some point in this century? Yes, um, the coinage started in, um, to be specific, 1320s. Um, and we have a couple of coins from that uh, period mentioning Osman's name. And interestingly, one of those coins also mentioned uh, the name of uh, the Abbasid Caliph who had been dead for a century, uh, showing that uh, that point is very actually telling for the Ottomans' ambition uh, to become an independent state. It's 1320s, there's still a Mongol suzerainty over Anatolia, they are still there paying their uh, taxes, they cannot adopt any significant title of independence uh, except for Beit. So what they did, uh, they minted a coin, and minting a coin, uh, by definition, uh, an act of uh, independence. Uh, but if you're a tributary state, uh, you are allowed. Um, and they minted it uh, with the name of this Ottoman ruler and the Abbasid Caliph, implying uh, that they are still operating under the imperial protection and loyalty of the Abbasids. Now, Abbasids were long gone uh, by that time. Uh, they were crushed by the Mongols in 1258. Uh, Abbasid Empire was over. Uh, but putting the Abbasid Caliph's name uh, on the coin uh, is a little bit of defiance. Uh, of course, it can be interpreted as uh, a matter of uh, reverence. Uh, to the Abbasid Caliphate, but also it implies uh, that the Ottomans uh, are seeking to dis to detach themselves uh, from the Mongol uh, enforced uh, loyalty by invoking uh, the name of the Caliph whose empire was crushed uh, by the uh, Mongols. And the second um, important sign of independence was uh, Friday sermons. Uh, when the ruler's name was mentioned in Friday service, that meant uh, that ruler is independent uh, in that uh, region. Uh, that happened actually much earlier, according to Ottoman uh, chronicles, uh, and during the early years of uh, the 13th, the 14th century, Osman started to have his name mentioned um, in the uh, sermon. So by uh, 1320s, it was sure uh, that the Ottomans were uh, an independent entity, but a tribal paying independent entity to the uh, Mongols. Independence from the Mongols came with the use of the title Khan in 1350s. Is there consensus then that it's the 1350s that the Ottomans had formed a state? Yes. Okay. 
I mean, we can, no, we, let's uh, uh, correct it a little bit. Uh, by 1350s, we could say the Ottomans became fully independent. Uh, the turning into state was a gradual development from 1300s uh, to 1320s. Okay. So yeah. By 1320s, the Ottomans were already a state. Okay. Yeah, you got you got it in there on the on the record. Um, okay. So, is this century? If you were to summarize this century of the, for their for their growth in different relations with different different states, you mentioned there was some military campaigns and conflict, but it also sounds like you, there was a lot of diplomacy. Would you say that it was a lot more diplomacy in this in this century and building building relationships and, and alliances more so than than military campaigns? We can say um, alliances and diplomacy were at least as important as military conquests uh, because in most cases those military conquests uh, were in tandem uh, with alliances and uh, diplomatic um, relationships. Uh, the Ottoman um, Ottomans started to or they wanted to establish uh, diplomatic relations with Italian city-states, uh, for example. Uh, those were the biggest players uh, in the uh, entire Black Sea, Mediterranean uh, Sea region, uh, very uh, rich trade networks. Uh, they controlled especially Genoese and the uh, Venetians. Uh, the Ottomans sold uh, their alliance uh, and they did uh, against uh, the will of the Byzantines. Uh, the Ottoman Genoese um, uh, agreement, uh, they say we don't know if it is a formal treaty or not, um, was very essential uh, for the Ottoman expansionism into the uh, Balkans uh, because they didn't see any resistance uh, from uh, from the Genoese, uh, at least, uh, because the seas were still controlled uh, by those city-states uh, at the time. Same could be told uh, for local feudal uh, establishments uh, or local principalities uh, either under the Byzantines or in the uh, Balkans uh, that uh, in many cases uh, they got into an agreement uh, with the Ottomans uh, rather than facing the Ottomans uh, defeat them or being defeated. Uh, so the Ottomans and also we don't we cannot assume that the Ottomans were quite after diplomacy uh, or they knew about uh, diplomacy uh, but they figured uh, the um, utility uh, of diplomacy uh, through their own um, expansion while they were still in Bosnia. Uh, so uh, they, uh, they allied with the local elements uh, and with the help of those local elements uh, they expanded at a faster pace uh, and that, that experience building uh, helped the Ottomans uh, to seek uh, diplomacy uh, and alliances in their expansion but that doesn't of course diminish uh, the um, definitive value of Ottoman 
military uh, successes. Uh, they are both interdependent. Uh, we cannot simply assume that the Ottomans were simply uh, better uh, in battle uh, than all of their opponents. We have to have some other elements uh, that help the Ottomans uh, out because they are not coming from um, a, a militarily superior uh, region. Uh, they did not control uh, or command uh, superior military technologies. Uh, they were their military organization uh, was a lot more flexible and agile um, compared to established feudal structures uh, in the Balkans. Uh, yes, but they were not militarily uh, superior. So most military um, technological additions came uh, through their alliances uh, in Western Anatolia and the Balkans. Uh, added to that, uh, their military organization uh, and the Ottoman military became increasingly uh, more advantageous uh, and superior to their uh, ever getting smaller uh, opponents because Balkans uh, were you know, one of the reasons uh, that explains the rapid expansion of the Ottomans was uh, the extremely fragmented nature of uh, the Balkans uh, under the feudal uh, system that there was no major, major uh, force uh, to face the uh, Ottomans. So the Ottomans, despite their um, humble background or origins, uh, they, through alliances and diplomacy, uh, became uh, superior or more dominant uh, to their individual opponents in the Balkans. I want to end the conversation with some kind of question and answer around juxtaposition, comparing the end of the century to the start of the century. Before we go there, Hussein, is there any other major point that you want to mention that you feel we haven't covered in, in this century as it relates to the Ottomans? In the century, um, we, yes, we have to say a few things that uh, are uh, that we observe uh, during the expansion of Ottomans in the 14th uh, century. One was, uh, one very relates uh, to what we said earlier, uh, that the inspirations of uh, the Ottomans. One was the Mongols, uh, the idea of uh, independence um, and building an expansive uh, empire uh, was uh, already implanted by the Mongols in the region. Uh, so Genghis's name uh, was a legend already at the time as a global uh, conqueror, as a world conqueror. Uh, so it was the dream of every uh, ambitious ruler, uh, we could say. And the model was readily there uh, through multiple uh, channels uh, to imitate. And Ottomans were quite well positioned. Uh, to take advantage uh, of that. Secondly, uh, the Ottoman expansion involved a spiritual uh, component which helped them uh, to consolidate uh, their conquests. Uh, it's very important, uh, which the Mongols lacked. Uh, the Mongols were quite indifferent uh, in terms of the confessions of uh, the territories, uh, the peoples uh, they took over. Uh, the animals were uh, a lot more interested 
uh, in that. Uh, so they allied with the Dervish uh, groups, and Dervish groups actually worked uh, with local populations uh, to not only convert them to their own uh, spiritual convictions, uh, but also align them uh, with the Ottomans uh, politically. Uh, so the Ottomans uh, were not only a military power, lack of legitimacy, uh, but uh, a power whose legitimacy was bolstered uh, by spiritual means. And the third component was, uh, especially in the case of uh, Orhan, but also continued by other successive rulers, was uh, their building projects in the in West Anatolia, but mostly in the Balkans. Um, and those building projects uh, were mostly uh, modeled um, after the work of the pious foundation, uh, traditional pious foundations model of uh, Muslim states, uh, by which uh, a given building or institution or service would be funded uh, by an endowed income-bearing property. Uh, so it could be a territorial uh, region uh, in which a land could be assigned uh, or income-bearing shops uh, or customs dues, um, anything uh, that bears income for specified functions uh, to be served uh, for the local needs. And we have we see a variety of such uh, building structures uh, erected uh, by early Ottoman rulers uh, across the uh, Balkans, ranging from orphanages uh, to uh, soup houses, uh, soup kitchens, to hostels, uh, to Sufi lodges, uh, and most importantly, of course, uh, mosques. So all these um, architectural networking uh, of Ottoman territories enabled them uh, to make the Ottoman state visible uh, and give their um, constituencies uh, a sense of uh, living in the same or under the shadow of the Ottoman uh, Sultan, as they put it at the uh, time, or shadow of uh, Ottoman Sultan being a shadow of uh, God, uh, under the order that provided uh, by the Ottoman uh, So all these components made the Ottomans a stable state in the course of uh, the 14th uh, century. Otherwise, their uh, very rapid territorial expansion uh, would have been much like the uh, Mongol uh, expansion, uh, which uh, relied exclusively in local elements uh, without um, making them in alignment uh, with the rest of the uh, empire. So despite the Mongol unification, it was a, uh, in terms of uh, local structures, it was a terribly uh, fragmented structure. Uh, in the Ottoman case, uh, this fast expansion um, was given unifying features um, in the case of uh, these three components uh, we talked about. Okay. At the start of the conversation, you mentioned they originated in the northwestern region of the Anatolian Peninsula. You mentioned they became a state. 
during this during the century in the early part of the century um, in the 1350s I believe you mentioned they became an independent state can you can you describe to create that juxtaposition at the end of this episode what their uh, geographic demarcation would have uh, been like by the end of the um, by the end of the period that we're talking about today so by the end of the uh, 14th century by the end of the 14th century the Ottomans were still in Anatolia confined to northwestern corner of the Anatolia despite the fact that they expanded a little bit to the east and uh, south mostly through alliances. So uh, in addition to their alliance and diplomacy work uh, with uh, Christian nobility and states, uh, they did the same with other Turkic principalities, mostly through marriage um, alliances. Galmian, uh, for example, was a much larger principality than the Ottomans. Uh, they took it over uh, by inheritance. Uh, so such endeavors uh, led the Ottomans to expand uh, into Anatolia, uh, but their biggest expansion was into the uh, Balkans. Uh, so much of today's Greece, uh, Bosnia and Bulgaria uh, were taken over uh, uh, in the 14th uh, century. So the Ottomans already by the end of the 14th century are the largest uh, territorial entity in the Balkans. Uh, in fact, bringing together uh, many of the former independent Balkan states, uh, such as the Bulgarian um, Kingdom. And Bayezid I uh, was particularly known, uh, his uh, title was Thunderbolt. Uh, he was all after expansion, uh, until uh, his own expansionist ambitions uh, was cut down by another more ambitious uh, conquer coming from the east, the descendant of Genghis Khan, Tamerlane, uh, in 1402, crushed uh, Ottoman armies and basically, basically ended uh, the Ottoman state uh, 1402. Uh, so that date actually uh, is a good demarcation line uh, for the 14th century endeavor of the Ottomans. After that, a whole new page, a whole new era. Uh, starts with the Ottomans, uh, and they rebuilt the Ottoman state from scratch, uh, which is a totally uh, different story. And uh, we talked about this. You're coming back on the show at some point then to chat about the Ottomans in the 15th century. Yes, gladly. Okay, great. I look, I look forward to it, Hussein. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you very much. Pleasure speaking here. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Yilmaz wrote, it's entitled Caliphate Redefined, The Mystical Turn in Ottoman Political Thought. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Hussein and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.